why we need the law, why it really matters, and how it plays into our lives here in the 21st century as children of grace. That's all straight ahead on today's edition of Graceful Truth. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth. Hi there. Welcome to the broadcast. Our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, takes us back to the book of Romans, as well as the book of James, as we take a look at sin and its relationship to the law and the law's relationship to grace. We would invite you to join us here in Romans chapter 7, as well as James chapter 1. And then mark it on your calendar, June 19th. Pastor Steve Converse will be Craig Roberts' guest on Lifeline with other pastors as well. We'll tell you more at the close of our program. But for now, here's Pastor Steve Converse and today's broadcast. I just want to read a couple verses out of Romans chapter. I just want to read a couple verses out of Romans chapter seven, and we'll kind of do a little introduction and then continue uh, in our study from last week, just closing up that one last point. But I want to read verses seven through eleven of Romans chapter seven. What shall, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I wanted to open up with a verse out of Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, because we're talking about the law, sin, and death, and we're talking about sin's relationship to the law. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. As I was reading this past week, I noticed in one of his messages, John MacArthur pointed out a couple reasons why, basically, the law is weak. God's law is ineffective in certain ways as it relates to us. And it's meant to be that way. He just pointed these out, and I just want to go over these a little bit in introduction. And the first one was, the law requires behaviors that are opposite the desires of the heart. And you realize that. I mean, when you read the Ten Commandments even, your heart wants to do the opposite. That's just who we are. And so the law requires the very opposite of what, by nature, our heart desires to do. And that's why it goes against the grain of someone who is unregenerate to keep the law. It's impossible. It's hard. It's difficult. If it was easy, everybody could do it. But the law asks the sinner, it requires of the sinner, it demands and commands the sinner to do what is absolutely contrary to what his will is. And then secondly, he said, the law calls for the sinner not only to do, but 
what he does not want to do, but what he cannot do. So the law calls us to do not only what we don't want to do, but something that we we can't do. It's impossible for the sinner to keep the law of God. And so we like to think once in a while, if we do something good, well, that makes us righteous. And we've learned over our studies that righteousness is something that God grants to us. We're justified, and, and a result of that justification is righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ. And so even if the sinner desires to do the right things, he can't do them. That's why the Bible says there's none, what, righteous? No, not one. We saw that back in Romans chapter 3, that no one understands, no one does good. Not only does he not desire it, but it's impossible for him to do it. Thirdly, he says this, the law exacts on all sinners absolute perfection of performance and accepts nothing less. That's what the law does. You cannot satisfy the law by keeping some of it, the Bible says. And that's what we read there in Galatians 3.10. That if you even break one little minutia of the law, you're under the curse of the law. And so when Jesus said, well, to the Pharisees, when they asked, well, how do we inherit the kingdom of God? He says, you have to be what? Perfect, right? You have to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you, but that's tough. We can't satisfy the demands of the law by keeping the law. Fourthly, he says, the law refuses to accept effort as any consolation. In other words, it doesn't matter how hard you try. The law still says, no, you, didn't, you missed the mark. So what? You kept nine of the Ten Commandments? Well, you missed the one? That's too bad. You're right down at ground zero once again. Because the law is a perfect reflection of the nature of God. It's absolutely holy. That's what we read in verse 12. And it requires that we do all of it perfectly. And if we don't, the law doesn't care. <laughs> the law doesn't pat us on the back and say, well, good try. It says, no, you're condemned. Fifthly, the law accepts no limited payment for its violators. There's no way that a sinner can say, I know I have violated your law, but I I, kind of have a a plan to work this off. (laughs) I have a plan to kind of do an end around. Uh, Somehow, there's got to be a plan, God, outside of of this, this keeping this law by perfection. So maybe it's, you know, 80, 20, something, you know, you're going to give us kudos for effort or something like that. No, the law does not do that. And then sixthly, he says the law is an unrelenting taskmaster. And what master, and what he means by this is it, it never eases up. The law is with you 24-7. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're driving down Jefferson at 12 noon doing 50 miles an hour or you're driving down Jefferson at 3 o'clock in the morning going 50 miles an hour. If there's a cop there, he's going to pull you over and he's going to issue a ticket. You can't say, well, there's nobody on the road. It's three o'clock in the morning. Did you see the sign? Yeah. Well, the law is with us 24-7. It never lets up. The, The load of the law that we bear never lightens. It never gives us a day off. It never gives us an hour off, a minute off, a second off. There's no rest from the law. God never at one point says, okay, well, you've been trying really hard. Well, you know what? Take two weeks off and do whatever you want. It doesn't work that way. Seventh, he says, the law breaks the soul. The law breaks the soul. It crushes the soul because when a sinner violates the law, they experience what? Guilt and shame. You experience sorrow and restlessness, pain, doubt, fear, remorse, because the sinner has nothing within himself to recover from that breaking of the law. The law asks us to do something that we not only do not want to do, but we cannot do. 
and it doesn't bend the grading curve. Eighth, the law promises to punish the sinner eternally in hell. There's no way around this. If you break God's law, there awaits for you a punishment upon those who break the law of God that will last for all eternity in hell. And the only way out of that is through a Savior who came to die, to live, be buried, to die, be buried, raised the third day. He paid the entirety of our sin. That's the only way we can escape that judgment of the law. And I think it's very important that we realize that. There's no back door. There's no second way or third way. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to me wants to come to the Father. He has to come through me. There's no parole. There's no grace in the sentencing. The law, ninthly, gives no help to the sinner. There's nothing in the law that provides strength or power to keep it. It's just the law. It doesn't help us. The law has no power at all. We learned this last week. We touched on this to save us. That's not why it was given. Sinners are powerless to obey its demands. So the law establishes a standard and gives you no help to keep it. Tenth thing he points out is the law, once it has been offended, provides no restoration. The law provides no restitution. The law doesn't say, okay, well, you broke this. Well, here, go say Hail Marys and and our fathers, and then that'll that'll take care of everything. The law doesn't say that. That's man-made. That's what man has come up with to try to please God. But the law provides no opportunity for that. The law does not give us a path to God. You can't be saved by the law. There's nothing in the law of God that will save you. Eleventh. He says the law listens to no repentance. In other words, the law is deaf. You can whine all you want. You can say, I'm sorry all you want. The law doesn't care. The law says, no, you know what? You're guilty of breaking the law. And here's your sentence. Death forevermore in hell. You can cry all you want. You can say you're sorry all you want. The law in and of itself has no way to provide you any kind of ear for repentance. And then 12, he says, the law offers no forgiveness. There's nothing in the law to provide forgiveness. You can cry out for grace. You can cry out for mercy from the law, but you're not going to get any. I mean, that's how the law works. If you think about it, the law doesn't care about your repentance. The law is the law. Now, obviously there are people in our system of law that override the law (laughs) that say, well, I think this guy's remorseful. You know, we're not going to sentence him to 10 years, we'll give give him 5 years. Even though the law says we can give him 10 years. But see, that's on the human side. The law doesn't do that in and of itself. The law is a very difficult task master. The law offers us no hope. As long as you're under the law, you're never going to have a better day. You have nothing to look forward to but the judgment of God. Now, as we read that, and we understand that, we see here in chapter 7... At the very beginning, we read, What then shall we say that the law is sin? In other words, if what you said, Steve, is true about God's law, man, it sounds like a pretty nasty thing. Let's just label it sin. And Paul says, no, by no means. And he ends there in verse 12. He says, the law is holy. The law, the commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. It just doesn't have any ability to save us. And so when you stop and you think of our rights and privileges that we have because of our union with Christ, 
You know, we celebrate the communion table here this morning. We celebrate that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died. And we've been learning about that union that we have with Christ. That we're now married to Christ. That we have a a mystical union that we're one with Christ when we come to him for salvation. Well, what does that mean? If the law means all that stuff and the law has nothing to offer us, well, what does a relationship with Christ have to offer us? What rights, what privileges do we have? You know, when you graduate from college or high school or probably even, I don't know if they do this in grade school, but a lot of times they'll say, basically the president will stand up and he'll say, the society of learned men and women, and he'll say, all the rights and privileges and responsibilities pertaining thereunto are granted to you. Because you have a diploma in your hand. The same thing. When you come to Christ for salvation, when you turn from yourself, when you give up at trying to save yourself, you have certain rights. You have certain privileges in Christ. The first one is this, access to God in prayer. These are listed here in your outline. It says there in Romans 5, 2, we looked at this several weeks ago, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's not referring to prayer so much as that we have gained access We have status before God now because we're justified in Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, what? By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses or transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus Jesus even said in John 14, verses 13 and 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What an incredible blessing we have in Christ with our newfounded relationship with God through Christ is that we have access to God through prayer. You can talk to God 24-7. Just like the law is a taskmaster 24-7, it never gives up. You know what? God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's there in the wee hours of the morning when we're stressing out of something or when we're on the freeway in an accident and the afternoon, whatever it might be, we can call upon God. And he doesn't put you on hold. He doesn't put you on call waiting. He doesn't say, oh, okay, now's not a good time. No, we have immediate access. And it's all because of our relationship with Christ. The second thing here that we see because of our union with Christ is that we have a provision for all of our needs. I think now more than ever, we live in a need-centered society. People are constantly thinking about what they want, about how to get it. That's why people who do marketing and advertising, they totally understand that. And they manipulate us like little, you know, puppets on a string. Oh, we'll put this ad out there and that'll create a, a need for this. As Christians, instead of always thinking about our own needs, we need to be concentrating on the needs of others. We really do. It's certainly true that we do have needs. And one of the privileges of our new relationship to God, the Father through Jesus Christ, is that God promises, listen, to supply our needs. He's willing because in his nature, that's just who he is, to do good to those he created. He's able because he's, he's omnipotent. He can take care of anything you have to bring to him. He has an unlimited, the Bible says, supply of riches at his disposal. Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God will what? Meet all your needs 
according to his glorious riches in Christ. See, the problem, I think, in modern society is we get needs confused with wants. <laughs> you know, we want all this stuff, but God's saying, well, you know what? You probably don't need all that stuff. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Thirdly, our rights and privileges of the union with Christ, not only access to God in prayer, provision for all of our needs, but thirdly, Jesus' personal care and protection. I mean, he's personally caring for us. He's protecting us. Can you imagine if there was a wife in our congregation who was in serious trouble and you ran and you told her husband and her husband said, ah, she'll deal with it. <laughs> what would you think? You think, man, this guy's, what's wrong with this guy? Right? I mean, you, you would never think a husband would do that. You'd never think a husband would be so callous toward his own wife. See, no one will ever be able to make that complaint against Jesus. He's our faithful helper. He's one who's a constant protector. Jesus, our bridegroom, he is with us each step of our journey through life. Matthew 28, 20 says, and he said, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One translation says, and lo, I am with you always. I talked to a pilot and he said, I don't like that verse. <laughs> lo, I'm with you. What, what happens when I get up at 50,000 feet? Is God still with me? See, as he accompanies us, he, is, he also works with us to make us all that he wants us to be. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27, Paul is speaking here of marriage, but he writes this. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. Or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. See that's what Jesus does for us in full measure. He's used as a picture for our marital relationship. And he's a wonderful example of someone who cares and protects his children. He's present to deliver us from temptation. Paul assures us over in 1 Corinthians 10:13 that no temptation has seen you seized you except that which is common to man and God is what faithful right he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to be to bear but he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation see the temptation is not the sin beloved just because we're tempted doesn't mean we're sinning it's what we do with that temptation. And we have to remind ourselves that, hey, God has given us, Jesus has given us everything we need to deal with any temptation that comes down the pike. We just have to realize that. And we have to count it as true. And when that temptation comes, we have to remind ourselves, you know what? There's a way out of this. There is a way out of this. My problem is, do I want to take it or not? And then the last thing, one of the rights and privileges that we have, and it kind of ties in with our missionary video, the Bible I mean, there's a sense in which the whole world has the Bible to some degree. It's available to anybody, I mean, especially nowadays via the Internet. It's hard to understand that there are some countries that still people are wanting the Bible and they can't get it. But having the Bible is much more than just having a copy if we're, if we're truly believers. Because together with God's holy word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit interprets the Bible to us and we hear the voice of the Lord through his word. We need to be reminded of that. The psalmist says, my spirit pants for thee, O living word. And we have to be reminded 
that God has given us his word. And he gives it to us in a way that we can read it, that we can comprehend it. I mean, aren't you glad the Bible isn't in Greek and Hebrew? I mean, they could have been. Could have said, this is all you got. (laughs) No, God is very generous. He provides that for us. And now you say, okay, well, we got the law and all the negative stuff, and we got our life, our union in Christ, and all the positive stuff that we have. And today I just want to focus briefly on a little word study on the word flesh. And it's all the way back in verse 5. It says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And we learned last week that basically the law is not sin, the law is good, but it reveals our sin. And we also looked at the law provides, uh, provokes sinners to sin. When someone says, oh, you can't do that, you want to do just that, that they told you not to do. But when we think about our flesh, I kind of skipped over this slightly on purpose because I wanted to tie it in with this message. But that word flesh, the Greek word, sarks, it can mean several things, and they're written for you there in your outline. And it's occurred several times in Romans. And this is very fundamental. It's very foundational to us understanding anything going forward in the book of Romans. It can mean the soft, fleshly part of the body. If you look up Luke, we're not going to do it for time's sake, twenty four thirty nine. you'll see that's what it means. Jesus came in the flesh. It can mean the whole body, Galatians two twenty. It can mean the sensual part of our nature. It can mean the whole of mankind, everybody, just human flesh. It can also mean the unregenerate or unbeliever, as it does in Romans chapter 8. You say, well, why are you bringing this up? Why is this important? Because when you stop and you think of your theological understanding of the word flesh, and you think of your theological understanding of your, your Christian experience, this word comes up, over and over and over again in in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And some have made the error that that basically leads into a a, a wrong doctrine. The problem is that the word flesh, it's used in a lot of different ways. Just like in English, we have different words that we, we use differently. And I think that when you stop and you think of the word mind, M-I-N-D, the English word mind, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean the brain. It can also mean determination, having a mind to do something. It can also mean be careful, mind what you do. Uh, In philosophy, the mind can mean the controlling spirit of the universe. (laughs) See, in the same way, the word sarks in in the original language can mean various things. And we've listed those there for you. But it's important to understand what it means here. In this case, it obviously doesn't mean the whole of mankind because it's being used as a contrast to those who are in the spirit. That's kind of clear. It's not referring to the body or even to any parts of the body. In Romans, it's a term, basically, the last definition there is for unregenerate unbelievers. It's what we were before God saved us. 
Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. And as mentioned at the beginning of our broadcast today, Steve Converse will be Craig Roberts' guest on Lifeline, along with Phil Howard, Napoleon Kaufman, and Brian Loritz. It is a special edition of Lifeline, Tuesday, June 19th, from 5 to 7 p.m., broadcast live from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. Now, it'll be dealing with living life from a biblical worldview, especially in light of Barna Research Group determining that only 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview and a dismal 9% within the church. You know, most of us own Bibles. Sadly, most of us don't know its own contents. So that's what this special edition of Lifeline is all about with Craig Roberts and our own Steve Converse joining the conversation again live from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Tuesday, June 19th from 5 to 7 p.m. So make sure you join them that evening for an exciting edition of Lifeline. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.